The following program features language some listeners may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. I invented the twiddle scratch or the flash the crab scratch, and there's you know there's been debates so who who invented that, and like because I showed that to to um, uh, Cuba and Shortcut in Japan in the early '90s, and that was because I was trying to learn the flare scratch back home. I ended up developing that, and then. They saw, I showed them that, and it, it, now it's one of the most recognized scratch in the world. So, You are listening to Hip Hop Cymru Wales, a podcast exploring the trails and untold tales of Welsh hip hop. My name is Luke Bailey, and I'm a podcaster, best known for the Fly Fidelity podcast. And I'm talking to key players about the notable and nuanced evolution of Welsh hip hop history. Welcome to the program. Formerly known as DJ XL, DJ Bad Meaning Good is this week's guest on Hip Hop Cymru Wales. In this rare interview, DJ Bad Meaning Good speaks to his humble beginnings and early inspirations on his journey to becoming one of the most recognisable turntablists in Welsh history. We discuss over three decades of experience and iconic battles, including the DMC Championships in Vestax, as well as inventing a twiddle scratch slash crab scratch, and so much more. So my name is uh, Maya Lloyd. I was uh, originally, I was born in Folkestone in Kent and my dad was in the army and we ended up moving back to, um, my, I got Welsh blood, but we were, I was born up in Folkestone because dad was in the army. We moved back down here in the 80s, 1980, I think, 79, 80. And then um, I moved to the small community up in Cumbran and uh, ended up meeting a load of lads through school and stuff, all like-minded, um, who, all, who all loved hip-hop, basically, um, listening to John Peel, who was the only person that was actually playing any hip-hop at the time. And uh, so we used to wait, I think it was half past 12, his, his latest show, or he started at 11 till 1. And I used to just wait up every time his show was on with a little, an old-school cassette player. And then as soon as he introduced a hip-hop track, that was just play, we uh, just recorded those tracks. And then just made these amazing mixtapes, you know, just... Uh, um, and everyone had the same sort of uh, idea or putting those mixtapes together. And that was my first exposure really to, to listening to hip hop. Um, and then initially I was a, a, a B-boy after watching Breakdance the movie. <laughs> and we, me and one of my mates, uh, his name's Rob Carlton, um, amazing sort of uh, body popper and breakdancer. We used to go over to this guy um, in Thornhill who owned a shop, Tony, and he had a video um rental place and we used to randomly we went in there one day and it had breakdance the movie um how to how to body pop and breakdance uh, for 50 pence a time so we literally just hired that out for months and just practiced on that 
well, <laughs> the routines weren't good at first, but you know, you know, you just keep going, you keep going, and that was the first exposure really to um, to, to b-boying or breakdancing, and it's breakdancing now, but obviously it's b-boying and, and, and popping, and locking, and stuff. And then we just met other guys randomly who were doing a similar thing, and all became friends and formed a crew called uh, called Crazy Rock. I've got I went at my dad's attic the other the other month and I found the original top because we were sponsored by Cumbrian Town um, for Live Aid to do performances, graffiti, and doing um, a b-boy um, demonstration for the crowd. And I found the actual the actual top. It's like a, a sweat top and it's got crazy crazy rock on the front, um, Cumbrian shopping. So a real nice piece of history there, you know. Very cool. It's always felt like, for whatever reasons, Cumbrian has always felt less represented and celebrated as other regions in Wales. Give me a sense of making the best of those moments and, I guess, elevating your identity back then. How instrumental do you think isolation was for you, developing who you were? Yeah, I think it was. I mean, I, I don't see it in any way negative that we weren't... Um, I don't think anywhere was recognised because it was so it was so new. I mean, we're talking... Well, I was 13 when I really started getting into hip-hop graffiti. And so I didn't think anything of it. I, I was just fell in love with the sound. As soon as I heard the Street Sounds collection and the Morgan Khan stuff, I was just, I was just all over it, you know? I heard that. And then um, Public Enemy came in with a Yo, Yo Bum Rush the Show album. And um, I know that was slightly later, but that whole thing, I was just just obsessed with the culture from b-boying because we were big all, all our crew were were massive fans of beat street um obviously breakdance the movie took more cheesy but the, the moves were just un unbelievable in the music and then when beat street came out that was just unbelievable you know the graffiti that that acts that aspect and then the dancing and then those battles um with arthur baker's um breaker's revenge tune and then we we used to go to a thing in Maskell's it's now King's Church down on the way down to Pell but it was uh, it was a roller skating uh, place if no one I don't know if anyone remembers like a disco and roller skating and then on a Saturday afternoon from five till six it was called breaking hour and all the crews used to come down battle each other and we always used to think we was in Beat Street and it was amazing there was a guy called Robbie Howells a Welsh DJ mm. amazing DJ at the time and he used to play Easter DJ and play all the tunes and we used to just go in there and kick back and just really enjoy it and sort of lived for the Saturday, really. But um, as for Cumbran, it's the isolation side. Like I said, I didn't really notice that. Um, yeah. People people don't realize, I mean, this is a, a long time ago. No internet, no no DVDs. Video was very, very basic. You know, we, we had still had Betamax and, and VHS. And as for, like, seeing anyone else do any kind of DJing, like, we used to look at Flashdowns. You know the film Flashdance? Absolutely. Because Crazy Rock, um, Crazy Legs was in that doing part. He he was playing, you know, different parts and roles in that film. That's right. And even foot, Footloose, there was a guy doing a, a popping thing in there. That's all we had access to. What If we saw it in a film, that's what we used to watch over and over and over. And in the training videos, that Breakdance the Movie thing, that was the only thing I, I'd ever found. So any sort of source we could find to look what was happening that's the only you know, that's the only avenue we had but that creates um you know uh new ideas and mm. because you don't know what anyone else is doing so you try and mimic that but then try and advance on what they see and you end up 
being sort of innovative in that in that respect. From those b-boy days, that sort of took me into that. That carried on across into my DJing. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I loved that whole beginning period of discovering hip hop in Cumbran. That was, you know, from New York to Cumbran. Who who would have thought it? Eh? I mean, all of this you're experiencing right at the start of its infancy, like you said. There's multiple active crews battling, breakdancing. There's a couple of DJs at the time. What DJs outside of who you mentioned earlier are DJing at this timeline? Um, well, in our in our little crew, we weren't because like, well, we had a we had a posse. <laughs> it was called the LSD posse. So, um, <laughs> and there was there was a guy. It was it was uh, his name was Shun. We called him Shun Lee Shun. He was sort of producing beats, and it was a uh, Tucker MC Bass. Um, he was an amazing MC. This, these all come brand lads, and then we had all the, the B boy crews like Rob Carlton and um, Geordie and all those other guys. There was, there was there's too many to, rem- to remember really. And then the DJ inside, there was lots of us, but um, there was me, DJ JB, um, amazing DJ, um, uh, Jason Milner was a wicked DJ as well, and um, I can't think of everyone's names to be honest is Martin Lind and there was loads of us and obviously Jamie Winchester who I met through DMCs um, and, and now I, I work very closely with uh, and Jamie Winchester if you don't know he, he's the, uh, the owner of Play It Loud Studios and he's Lady Leisha's manager so a really good close friend of mine and uh, an amazing DJ I don't know how many people actually know that but he invented quite a lot of tricks in the DMC times so we ended up meeting at Martha's Vineyard um, but there was loads of loads of guys who were DJing all at the same time. And we used to go to each other's house and we'd take it in turns showing our set, you know, which we've been practicing. And again, there was no outside influence apart from if you want to learn a scratch, we'd, we'd have to listen to records and try and work out how they did it because you couldn't see anyone doing it, you know. Back in the day, you could only get mostly um, American imports. So I used to get all my music imported. Then I ended up working in a record shop in Cumbran. Um, Apple Stump Records, um, owned by Richard Sampson, really, really cool guy who used to help everybody out doing a lot of stuff for the sort of music community and especially the hip hop guys. We made records from there and everything. And, and then I had the opportunity then to order a lot of imported stuff for people in Cumbran and Newport, and they used to come down and get their music from us. But we all used to go to um, Groove, Groove Records up in um, in Greek Street in London. It's a very famous record. It's gone, record shop is gone now. Um, and then I, me and my other mate, uh, Jason Milner, we'd go to, to Birmingham, Don Christie's Records. We'd tell our mothers we were going to each other's houses and we'd end up going down on the train, going to um, going to a club. And then we'd get a load of records and we'd sleep in the car park until the next morning. And then we'd come back. It was just uh, pretty pretty amazing times, really, all for the love of, of hip-hop and music. What did your setup look like back then? <laughs> well, I mean... We were all skint. My 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 dad was a miner, and uh, I didn't actually have decks. One of the, one of our lads, uh, Ricky, really nice guy, Ricky Lynch. He he had Memorex decks, and he had a realistic mixer from a place called Tandy, which was an electronic shop um, back in the day, and they don't exist anymore. But that mixer had a phono switch on it, like a tr- where we could do transformers, and we would listen to. Um, Terminator X from Public Enemy doing uh, it was a scratch he goes rock and roll he scratches that rock and roll like that and when we heard that we all just ripped that off and tried to copy it and that's the only way we could 
learn how to scratch listening to other people because you couldn't see it anywhere so we'd all go down his house <laughs> he had these decks and memorex decks were um belt driven so he had the best setup at the time but my setup was literally a old hi-fi belt drive hi-fi with a, a built-in cassette tape and um not even up faders or cross faders just like an audio knob turning it up and down like you know a normal um i don't know what you call it it's just a volume up and down then i had one of those old decks which you could play eight records at a time and each each time one finished the other one would fall down well they didn't even have we didn't have mixers so i had one of those with this spindle so i so i sawed the spindle off because it was like massive um sawed it down and then i snapped the the plastic bit off but that this one was a direct drive and it had an up fader on it out of all the other things but we had no mixer so i started to learn how to scratch on that listening to jazzy jeff um the magnificent um and i damaged all my records first of all because i didn't realize i needed a slip mat so I, I, it was i remember it was a utfo track and it, and i turned it over and it was all these white lines on, on the back where i'd been um, battering it without a, a slip mat and then slowly but surely you learn this information and then, like I said, we didn't have a mixer. So when I used to practice trying to mix records together, you had to do it by ear. Um, um, and just, and that's why it was, we learned everyone who sort of came up in those days were really good at actually just mixing records, you know, not, not alone just scratching, but mixing because most of us didn't have the equipment. So you, you, you and we didn't have many records. So you just had to learn by ear because there was no pitch controls and any of these things. So you just had to slow it down with your finger. So you, you very quickly learned to, to listen to tracks and know if they were one or within one, two or three BPMs of each other. You said you very quickly learned to do that. How long did it take you? Um, well, the early days, like I said, I think I, cause I was, I was breaking for, a couple of years then got into graffiti and i've always been into art because my mum used to teach me how to, how to draw on stuff um and we all went through that for a while um but when i seriously started to, to get into dj and obviously you can't get anywhere until you get your techniques because at the time they were the holy grail and uh very expensive but my dad unfortunately got <laughs> as we were we were saying um uh he got made redundant from the coal from mine and uh he bought me my first set of technics decks and i had to pay him back um 15 pounds a month or a week and i I went up in the attic a couple of weeks ago again looking through and i found my payment book with all the dates on it and i had to sign it every every week and it took me about three years to pay off my decks 15 pound a month or 15 pound a week every single week but when i got a lot of money back then yeah it was massive amounts but for me that i had technics decks in my room but the only problem is i didn't have a mixer for another six four or five months because i couldn't afford it so i had tech two brand new technics decks in my room and i just could not um just could not use them so i ended up getting the mixer and then slowly just building up my record collection um and then a few sort of things started coming out then we heard other djs and um and i just just kept practicing and hearing it was mostly mixtapes. Like there was a guy called DJ Cheese from America, one of the first guys who won the world championships. Chad Jackson, then DMC used to bring out mixes. Um, so it started to trickle through then. Um, and I think it was Cash Money won the world finals, and that was on video. And we saw that, and that was the end of it. It sort of opened our eyes to a lot of stuff. And that's when I really started getting practicing hard. But then from there, 
Um, it took me about three years from nothing to get to my first UK final, I think. Let's go back to practice for a second, because you're talking about a pretty long timeline. Three years, you said it takes you to get to this point. Yeah, I think it was about three years. Well, my first DMC was 1987. I think it was 1987 in Swansea. So okay. 87, 86, 85. You know, I'm not, I can't remember 100% what the, what the time frame was, but was it 13, 13, 14, 14, 15, 15, 16? Yeah, it was about, it's got to be about three years because I was in, I was about 18, 17 in 1987, something like that. Um, so yeah, it's about three years to get there, which is quite a short period of time, really, considering we were playing catch up. Yeah, you were absolutely, because of course, London is ahead of Wales. Yeah. You've said it before. Now, yeah. Talk about those three years. Can you speak to any, I guess, sort of eureka moments in honing your craft and balancing versatility and unpredictability within your style? What was that like as a growing period for you? Um, well, first of all, you know, I was obsessed by it. So I came home from school and straightened the decks, got a new record, did something on that, you know, and just learned the techniques. And like I said, it was hardly anything you couldn't really pick up anything we didn't see very many djs anywhere but like right. i said once the dmc videos started coming out and some of these were leaked and we got you got access on on tapes these crazy mixtapes were going around videotapes of really low quality stuff but the dmc's come out with cash money and we saw all the other guys from around the world and then obviously you emulate them first to get to, to that standard because what i always used to do to practice especially later in my dj and my, my battling career was i would I'd look at everybody else, but I would only focus on the, the world champion. And if I wasn't as good as him or capable enough to beat him, then I wasn't good enough. That was your so, benchmark. Yeah, of course, because I wanted to be the, the world champ. So I would only, I would only focus. Obviously, I would still take notes of what everyone else was doing, but the only person I needed to beat was the, the whoever was the best, the best at that time. And obviously, things change. But that's a high, you know, that's that. It, it's a high benchmark, but. Um, it made you it's more realistic being honest it's like it's no point trying to be as good as the third place guy because he didn't win it <laughs> right he didn't win and if you if you want to win you've got to be you know at the time but i wasn't really into it but for the for the, the winning it i just wanted to i just loved doing it it was an amazing yeah. it was just an amazing skill so technique what did you say technique technique wise um what i've developed because dmc initially was Disc, it's, it stands for Disco Mix Club, and mm. it was a lot of mixing, like like normal DJs mix now in a club. There was a lot of that with a few elements of scratching and beat juggling. Well, beat juggling didn't exist for a long time, just sort of tricks where people used to do basic stuff. I mean, you had Chad Jackson, um, this guy, he made a few, quite a few records. He was the UK champion for a while, and he was using snooker cues and um, all these different kitchen sinks, everything to scratch on records. Um, and it was just amazing. I was thinking, oh, this, this is unreal. This is, <laughs> and I want some of this action, you know? So I, when you see these things, you try it yourself. Um, and a lot of it is just trial and error. And you just do it by mistake and you do something really good. And um, it's just, I, it was easy for me because I, I just, I, I was in love with it, you know? So coming up and showcasing your skills, what yeah. kind of impact did those house parties, which there was a lot of back then, what kind of impact does that have on you in terms of your perspective of audiences and realizing a power behind the turntables? Well, my, we used to go to this um, uh, 
a weekly event. It was like a disco more or less. It was um, Speakeasy, it used to be called. And I just got my decks. I think it was the guy whose name is Barry, Barry Desmond, really nice guy who used to do the DJ. And we always go down there, you know, all hooking up, looking for girls and et cetera. And, you know, you know the deals, young young lads all, all uh, ready to rock. Sure. And I ended up doing a, getting my first, doing my first set there. And I actually used Debbie Gibson and Bross <laughs> wow. as a mix. It was like Debbie Gibson, only, only in my dreams. And I owe you nothing by Bross. Um, so it wasn't even hip hop, but you know we were playing to a different crowd. So even then, I had an understanding of that you have to play to whoever's there, you know. Yeah. So and then, but we, what you got to think of then? We had a lot. Of, we had a lot of hassle um, when hip hop came in. There was a lot of sort of like we all used to work, walk around with bomber jackets, you know, the old Beastie Boys thing where we everyone used yeah. to steal the the bulk rack and stuff. So we had these bomber jackets, but there was a lot of, no, people weren't into hip hop like we were. You know, there's, there's a big crew of us, like 30 or 40 people, B-boys, breakers, MCs, everything, you know, artists. But a lot of people weren't into it like they are now. I mean, everyone's been touched now by hip hop at some point, you know, through advertising, clothing, um, music, anything. But back then it was it was so unique. And there was a, there was a lot of hassle, like, like fighting, um, you know, disrespect people into rock music hated the hip-hop guys and all that sort of stuff silly silly stuff but um it took a while for people to get get into it so we used to, i used to dj in there now and again and did my first set and it was it was good but it was pop music i didn't even play any 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 hip-hop at all but then he used to play a lot of dmc mixes so we used to love all that and they were pre pre-made mixes which you could buy the records from so uh barry i think it was barry desmond he used to play the tunes in there um, and it exposed a lot of people to 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 the music, and it slowly changed. Where instead of being anti hip hop, especially after they, you know, we started doing competitions and people could turn up, we all used to end up going to a place in Swansea, uh, Martha's Vineyard, which was just amazing on a Wednesday night. And before any of us were sort of really doing any doing any damage on the scene, we used to just go there and dance and, and meet other people, and it was just a just a killer night. And in the you know. I think late 80s, early 90s. Uh, and that's where I saw Cutmaster Swift and Pogo, DJ Pogo from London doing that. They came down and did a tour. Um, and I spoke to them. I got a photograph with them. And I said, so I'm going to be a I'm gonna be a champion one day. We got this photograph. And uh, I ended up being, you know, invited with it into their crew, the uh, the Enforcers, which was, which was was very kind of those lads. But strange how things turn out. Take me back into that moment, being at Martha's Vineyard, like you say, being surrounded by so many people who are now accepted of hip hop, being around your friends, being around you people. What are those moments like? What are they playing at the club? Well, it was all like, you know, Big Daddy Kane, you're talking Big Daddy Kane, Kid and Play, all the the, the 90s uh, artists, Eric B, Rakim, all those guys, you know, obviously the, the masters, what, were they, what they do. But for us, it was, we didn't have any real nightclubs in Cumbran. And there was a, one in, in Newport we used to go to, which was Ritzy's at the time. But they didn't play really hip hop. Obviously, it's a, it's a poppy chart place. So this was a specific night aimed at, at dance music and mm-hmm. 90s. You know, we had, you had house music in there, early house music and predominantly hip hop. And everyone used to go on there and do the dances. And we'd be copying all the films like House Party and then obviously beat. Uh, break dance all those all those battles they used to have and that that just spawned a massive um wave of fashion 
we were all ripping off. Any when MC Hammer came out, everyone just walked around with those massive trousers on. Those big, I remember I had a massive <laughs> big red, red baggy pair. Everyone had them on. I mean, we looked ridiculous. So it was like Alibaba. Um, <laughs> but you didn't care, man. I just didn't. No one cared, and everyone was trying to, you know, dance. You know, there was a, there's a dance called the Wop and all these different things, and we all copied copied that and it there was never any hassle it was just a really good vibe and for us it was like exciting because we were still yet really young and we yeah. were in this amazing sort of nightclub with this killer soundtrack and killer music playing and i was thinking what is this this is unbelievable it was just for the vibe and you know and and obviously that the more dvd and not even dvds the more videos that came out and they were influenced by um, by hip hop culture, um, the more access to it we saw, like I said, the fashion. We all started, you know, putting tram lines in our hair and all these different things, and the color that because '90s was like really colorful. Everyone was just dressed amazing, and that's why everyone still dresses like that now because it was just a, a brilliant period in in, the, in fashion, not just in the music. As the the hip hop fashion was just uh, took over the world, didn't it? And it's still there now. My name was, is DJ Demo, uh, out of Swansea, South Wales. Uh, I've been a DJ since 1985, till the present day. Still kicking on at 52 years old. Um, my first memories of DJ Excel and the whole, whole combined crew that sort of, they was a, already a, a fully formed group, rappers, graffiti, DJs. My first memory is when they came down for the 1989 Swansea Heat in the DMC UK Finals. And obviously Excel's a very tall guy, so that's the first thing that uh, you notice about him. He came with another DJ, which is uh, Buzz, DJ JB, out of Cumbran as well. Uh, a rapper, MC Bass. Uh, Mark Bad Belly Lang, Chu, full crew of them. My first impression of them was they all know this stuff. You know, they've all they're all obviously on it. They're all obviously practicing and into it, just like we all was. You know, discovering it, getting into it. Probably all just getting our techniques that year that we presented in the competition. And I remember Excel being very good, very precise. Um, quick but you know just as his partner was dj buzz jb he was the same they was both you know very good very good mixes if i i know jb at both of his he used to dj with both decks to the one side you know because he was a right hand scratcher so he used to dj with both decks to the right hand side no i think the first year i met excel he was the same both decks to one side and then the second year that i met him He'd split them and put them in the more traditional battle style in the middle. Um, after that, me, we obviously we all kept contact. You know, we'd all still in contact today. I talked to Buzz this week. I've talked to MC Bass Tucker this week, and uh, I still converse with uh, Excel or Maya. You know, through various means. You know, about videos and DJ and things like that quite regularly, and. Uh, vivid memory of Excel would not be the first time that I met him. It was probably 
in the third, after the after about three years, when he entered the DMC, and he sort of took it by storm that year because he came up with a trick, which is probably everybody knows by now, which is the the record tapping trick, you know, where you turn it off and tap the deck and it comes out. Came up with that that year, and I was in Birmingham in the heat that he, he won to go through to the final that year. I was in Birmingham. Because uh, I went up, as I said, because we had a younger crew member who was only 11, and he ended that heat. But uh, he wasn't allowed to progress because he was only 11 years old. And obviously you had to be 18 to get in all the clubs where DNC were. But that year, Excel came up with that trip. And uh, I remember he brought the house down. He also did a, the Cigar Hamlet. I don't know if... People remember the, cigar, the Hamlet cigar theme tune where he breaks down, they say, you know, nothing's good as a Hamlet. And he, he breaks out the cigar. Those are the days you could actually smoke in venues. And he busted out cigar, you know, pretended his set had all gone to uh, pot and gone wrong and then put the theme tune on, busted out cigar and brought the house So when I first met um, Demo, Alfie, um, amazing DJ, um, in the competitions in Swansea, because he's a Swansea lad. Um, there's a couple of the, the Swansea lads. Um, I forgot. I'm, I'm getting on now, so I do forget. But Alfie's, you know, I've always stayed in touch with Alfie, a really good guy. And DJ Random, amazing, amazing DJ and a really good, you know, a good friend. And at the time, we used to, he used to be a pain in our ass because he used to come down and kick, kick our ass every time he turned up. Because he was, he was, because he was, I think he was from Bracknell or London, and, and he'd won the DMC. I think he won the UK at one point before. Um, and we used to hate him because we used to say he came down because it was easier competition for him to, to win it here because you had to win a heat, and then you had to go back to you know, and then you get into the final. But right. at the time, we was thinking, what's this dude coming down? You know what? Well, she's like they're so proud, but I ended up being a good mate of, of his. He's he's a and he's an amazing DJ, but. Um, it's just friendly battling. We'd we'd like he'd come down, kick all our asses, and then eventually we caught up. You know, it just takes time. But yeah, Random was a wicked guy, and uh, it's good because that exposed us to the first sort of competition we've ever had. You know, um, and I used to look at him. I think, wow, he's he's amazing. This guy's wicked. And I I still did a lot of mixing. Like one of my my first ever DMC in the, the heat was in Swansea. It was um, I played. Pinocchio, I've got no strings with Public Enemy number one, and uh, mixed those two together. I just mixed it together. I got no strings, the whole meter, and that's what it was like. And then, and then Random comes in and does all these backspins, and I was thinking, oh shit, <laughs> that was the end of it. And I, I was, you know, because like I said, we we were a little bit behind, um, right. and then we sort of advanced, and we 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 did really well then. But yeah, those times, those those guys were were brilliant, you know. What's the moment that you felt like everything started to change for yourself? Did it take long for you to realize that you wanted to enter battles? Um, well, I saw, I saw Pogo and Swift doing their demo thing, and I had a chat with them and took some photographs. And they were doing they were doing beat juggling. They uh, they went to America quite a lot because beat juggling. I don't know if people know what that is. They use two of the same record, and like you're doing originally, it's just like you're doing um, drumming, but you're using one deck on the other deck, and you're just cutting the breaks like the early the early pioneers right. did. Like Grandmaster Flash, just um, extending the break, but then you would do you would do drum patterns, and there was a couple of people in the US, like Steve D, 
was one of the founders of like beat juggling. But I think Pogo and Swift were one of the two of the, the first guys to actually do that over here, taking two tracks and manipulating the beat. And they did a, a set, and I saw that, and I thought that's a and, and and random as well. Random was doing that because obviously he had access to those guys, and he, he, they were all quite close, quite um, quite close. So yeah, I saw that, and that, that sort of pushed me in a direction where you know you just you just. Uh, you see that and you try and emulate it and then you come up with your own ideas and your own patterns. But I was always an ideas guy, so I wasn't technically the best scratcher, um, but I always I always come up with um, innovative tricks and ideas, and that's what I got, got known for in the end. How did those ideas typically come about and how would you execute those ideas? Well, in, the, in that 87... You, um, it was just the heat in Swansea. I remember doing that using my Uzi Ways a ton public enemy, and I did some nice stuff with that. And then I did. I remember doing. Um, I heard it through Grapevine and Planet Rock mixed that together, just a mix. But somebody came up to me after, and this is how basic it must have been because, you know, but you you got to think you you couldn't see this stuff or hear those those like mashups. Now everyone know, knows what a mashup is. Mm-hmm. But only DMC were doing DMC were doing their mixtapes and their 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 records, the vinyls they used to release. Mixtapes, mashups didn't really exist then. So when you did that, that's where you would see all these mashups. People would, oh, I, I know, we heard it through a grapevine. But then when you smash it with, um, Planet Rock, you know, Bambata, it sounded amazing. Some lad, some bloke, came up to me and said that he wanted to try and release that as a, as a, a record at the time. So I thought, hang on, this is a. That's interesting. It's just, it's just something like I, I, I remember that specifically that night. I, I played that, but then when I saw the other guys doing backspins and stuff, I moved away from uh, the mixing side, and the whole thing changed. Because each year there was a wave. For example, in the DMCs, like the first, early days, it was lots of mixing, and then all of a sudden, all these sort of um, using utensils to do mixing, like snooker cues and stuff like that, and crazy, crazy um, acrobatics on the decks. And then it went from that to the speed how fast someone could go hence dj david then it went a lot more musical um and where it is now it's it's obviously it's very technical now because you've got technology that, that aids it all now welcome on the techniques next dj excel <laughs> It's about 1991 was my first UK final. Um, so yeah, just and then obviously the more more DMC videos would come out each year. The World Finals we get access to seeing that because they didn't you couldn't see the UK ones because they didn't used to film them for a while. But there was a lot of sort of um, and all the Swansea videos. And then like the eighty set there was eighty seven and eighty eight, eighty nine, you know, and we just kept going and then. So I, I ended up um, going into winning a entering a Birmingham um, heat, and that was uh, it was called Excels the place that they actually entered. Actually, bar was called Excels, and there was a guy called um, DJ Tricks who was an amazing DJ. He did this really random jumping up and down, you know, slapping the using two tracks and doing um, just cutting back and forth like boom, boom, kick, boom, boom. He used to jump up and down, jump through his legs, and he was a he was amazing. He won that night. I think I came second. But again, I was still mixing. I mixed 
Luther Vandross so amazing with something else. And when I look back at it now, it's like, it sounds cringy, but at the time that was the, you know, people heard that and they thought, wow, that's a mashup of, of uh, Luther Vandross. You know? And then you've got then. these other guys. Yeah, it was like, like I said, you could just, you can listen to mashups all the time now, but then it couldn't really hear it anyway, you know, mixing different genres into um, stuff. But I was starting to develop my style, and every time you get access to seeing someone who was better than you and was doing stuff, I used to think, right, I've got to start switching this up, up a little bit. So that was my next one. I didn't get, I got to the, the heat, I didn't get to the final. And then I think, what was my next one? Eventually, I won, I entered the Birmingham Heat, me and JB, DJ JB Buzz, we entered it. We, you know, by this time, we'd practiced, you know, we were getting pretty good getting a lot of ideas and I used to run it through my mate Rob Carlton he was my record feeder because people now it's easy it's all digital but you had record obviously we were using vinyl um, right. and you only get six minutes in these battles so you know, and you try and get as many records as you can to save time you just reach out your mate would be on the side and he'd hand you the record so when I used to practice I used to show it to JB and I'd show it to Carlton because Carlton was my go-to because he was honest with me he'd say that oh, that's not good or that's too, that's amazing and he came up with a lot, you know, he, he influenced a lot of the stuff I did. Um, come up with different ideas and he'd say that, that won't work or this would work. Um, and then we went to the Birmingham Heat, me and me and JB. And I remember it was it was amazing. It was rammed. It was so busy. And we were really good that year, like me and him. Buzz went on. I was waiting before. Yeah, we called him Buzz and he went on. He just did this amazing set. I thought he's got this. He's got this, and I was. You know, we were all really happy. It was buzzing. Then I went on and I did this like piece of showmanship thing um, that really sort of blew people away. And then, um, and me and him won that heat first and second, and it it got recorded as like one of the best heats ever. It, actually, the heat was better than the final. People were saying, and okay. I always remember it. And that was that's what got me on the map was doing these. And it was some of the tricks we were doing were were just you know you've got to think this is like thirty plus years ago. I mean, it stands up today. A lot of that stuff now, people wouldn't be able to do that now. And I've forgotten so many things I've done. You know, we've done. I, I remember in the 1992 finals, I was in that. I didn't win that, but um, I, I, I started with two, one turntable on one shoulder, and one on the other one, just wow, just doing back spins like that, and then had loose loose ends hanging on a string, um, and then had strings about three foot long on each record and my foot on the crossfade and then pulling them back saying got me hanging on a string <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, to, to keep that going with with a, a record with a, a, a needle on there yeah. you know and to make it actually work that it's going back and forth backspin and not jumping i mean i practiced that for hours and hours and hours How and many now hours? i think back i think well just well you know, you got to think. You, you, it's once a year DMCs, and you only get six minutes. So I would probably practice that set probably six or seven, eight, eight hundred times throughout the year, over and over and over. Um, and oh, I just used to have a mirror in front of me, an old cassette tape player, a record, you know, recorder. I play. I'd watch myself in the mirror what I was doing because that's the only way you could see. It. You, you know, you you had to style it out as well a little bit, and mm. um, just hours and hours and hours of practice, but. It was never hard work because I loved it. You know, each year you don't win or, you know, you come up with something else and you don't win and you come up with something. You do start to get a bit demoralized, especially if you think you're you're the, the winner. But it, it was just because uh, I loved doing it. And the more ideas I came up with, it, the more ideas I came up with. You know, each time I did something, I thought, right, I can jump off that. 
so really that that Birmingham heat for me was the thing that sort of got me the sort of notoriety a little bit so that then solidifies and elevates your reputation there's a lot to be said about this b-boy ethic of competing that speaks to the energy and drive of what you're talking about isn't it how how would you describe your judges at that time being an influence in terms of how you would turn their expectations upside down these judges a lot of people back then had a love and hate relationship with judges how would you wow them and was there kind of a fire in that process to turn upside down their expectations um well it depends which competition because there was a couple of competitions like dmc was the primary one and then vestax came in if people don't know it's an amazing brand of, of mixers and turntables then no they don't um, exist anymore but they were a, a, a lot later to the game um judging was you know i used to have a bit, a bit of a, a love hate because sometimes i thought i'd won and other people thought i'd won and then and then you know you get a bit disheartened by it and judging was very different now now they've got the best guys judging the best you know they have djs judging but then it was like producers or singers or people they knew um so it wasn't always people who were judging didn't really understand they're looking for different things you know right so sometimes we 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 get all of us we'd get a little bit despondent because we we thought we'd won and they would pick somebody else even though we didn't think they were as good that's just us being enthusiastic and uh it didn't put us off because we just kept coming back and come you know I, I ended up doing it for about 10 years and then in the end i just got worn out by it all um and then it was changing quite a lot you know like because it got to a point for me where I, it was just variations of a theme a little bit more than um and until technology changed um because i'd seen it all you know we'd seen every single from the right from the beginning from dj cheese basically right the way through to the dmc's this this saturday just gone um um so yeah the judging side of it even though we sometimes we didn't agree with it i didn't take much notice of it to be honest because look you know when you come second in the competition we used to get two techniques 12 tens and i used to walk away and i come second three times so i walked away with you know a lot of turntables so i'd sell my old that's ones what you would win ones. yeah back in the day that even if you come second you would win a, a set of turntables you know um and now it's it's I mean, obviously, it's not as big as it is. People, it's hard to explain. It was this scene was massive. Um, as for DJing, it was like it was a huge scene. Like um, the first UK final was about three thousand people, and that was in Gold Diggers. My first UK final in Gold Diggers in Chippenham. It was just amazing, um, brilliant atmosphere. All our friends come down, just air horns going off. Other wow. DJs in the crowds, you know, swearing at you, trying to put you off, and. Just, but just a good vibe. It's a battle, so you ex- you have to expect that. So yeah. this is where the practicing came in because even though you were nervous, I'm, I mean, they used to call me on, and my hands were shaking, like uh, really shaking. <laughs> but I knew I was within reason. I could pull that set off, you know, nine times out of ten flawlessly. But you always had a little mistake here and there. But you know, I loved it. I, that's why I kept coming back, even though I was disappointed sometimes with some of the results. I always kept coming back because. It was the process. I just loved. I loved getting better, you know. And you're wrapped up in it, of course. It's interesting you talking about your hands shaking back then. A lot of people I have spoken to have all said the same thing. That doing the DMCs, their hands were shaking. Was it ever hard? Was it ever challenging to not let that show within your process those nerves? Not let that translate in what it was you were doing in your routines. Um, yeah, I mean that comes through the practice, um, and then. 
I, I teach I teach a lot of children in, in primary schools and comprehensive or high schools uh, how to teach, and I show them that 1991 UK final. Um, I think it's 1991 or 90. I can't remember now. I can't remember. And I show them because I don't even know what record players are. A lot of them, or if they do, they've never really. They never. They don't know one in the house. Like everyone used to have a record player. Yeah. And I, I explain to them when I when I show them how to scratch. I always teach them the baby scratch because it's the you know it's the it's the first scratch. And I give them a brief um, video demo on um, Grand Wizard Theodore who invented the cuts, and, and then. I show them that video of myself and I said, look, even though scratching looks quite aggressive, when you actually, and I turn the volume down and I show them my, my record hand and my hand hardly, you're not being heavy handed on there and you've been really gentle with the record. And I explained to them is that if you, if you weren't any turntablist or any DJ back in the day who was DJing, you develop a, a soft touch on the track because you can't go crazy on it. Um, so I can be doing full backspins, you know, two records with my elbows, but you just have to be light on it. Otherwise, you either snap the needle or it just skips all over the place. And yeah, many times I've I've messed up on in the in the competition, but you just move on. You try it one or two times. I remember I entered the ITF battle in Birmingham in Custard Factory. I was one of the favourites to win. This was in two thousand something, um, and no, it's nineteen ninety seven, something like that, because I was still in Wolverhampton. And I turned up, I had these like 12 sets to do. And my first set, couldn't get my needles to work, just kept skipping, just couldn't couldn't do it. And I just had to stop. Whatever I did, I put new needles on there, changed, did the tone arm, changed, put extra weight on, just did not work. Nothing, I just could not get past. And I went out in the first round because I just couldn't, I couldn't even focus on, couldn't do it. And I practiced my ass off for that set, you know, that was the first ITF I'd done. And I was one of the favorites and I just couldn't, it just would not work for me that day. Um, so there's always little errors, but um, most of the time you can, you can hide it, you know, you can get through it and the adrenaline. Is, I mean, my minute, my, you, you get six minutes, but you're so pumped by the time you get through it, you probably got 30 seconds left because you're rushing through it. You don't mean to, but you can't help yourself, you know, because especially if, when you get a good reaction from the crowd, you just go off, you, you go off. <laughs> you just think, oh, I'm amazing. And then um, it just hypes you up. Do you think that competitions were harder back in the 80s and 90s because fins were still new and populated with more styles and innovation that changed the trajectory? Um, yeah, I mean, it's like DMCs are online now. And DJ competition, they have, they've got a few. Um, the IDA, the Polish one, that's really good, and they've got the Goldie Awards, which is um, a tracks one. Um, and DMC has been online for a long time now. Goldie Awards still do a live event, and so do the IDA. I'm not sure if they're going to keep doing that, but um, it was definitely harder back in the days because there were so many people doing it. I mean, I used to turn when I turned up to the Birmingham heat, there was like there was sixty DJs in that, and you get wow. three minutes in the day. And you've got to go through it. So you've got you've got to go through sixty people, um, and then the best ten go through to the night, and then the best then your winner goes through to the UK final. Um, so the night, for example, and what we what you could do if you if you entered a competition and you didn't win, you could go and enter another heat. So this is why a lot of us guys we used to travel around. So me and JB went to Romford, and he went down there and won the Romford heat. Then. Um, we went to Bristol and then if you didn't win in Bristol you could, you can go somewhere else and eventually you would win and I, I was lucky because I won the Birmingham Heat quite early on because like me and JB ended together 
he comes second, I come first. So we went on to, I think it was Romford and he won Romford. And then Jamie went on to, you know, it was, um, we went to Bristol. So you could keep, you could just keep going on and on. And then obviously you're just getting better and better. And some nights, some nights you would do an amazing set. Um, and other nights you trash it. So you had, you had a, a lot of competition. It was definitely harder because, because of the competition, but also it was just each year was, was new stuff. Like I said, there was waves, there was body tricks. Then there was how fast you could go. Then it came out technical, then how good at scratching you were or how funky your scratches were. And it changed. And each year you had to modify it to, to stay ahead, you know, and then obviously more DMC videos used to come out. And then you had access, then they had the American finals that changed a lot because you could see what the American guys were doing. Um, and they, again, they were slightly ahead, not in, in, um, I think we were just as innovative, but they were ahead scratching wise, you know? I was out of battling when they started bringing in, um, the ability to use Serato and stuff. And now you can use whatever you want, but back in the day, it was just two techniques and a mixer and you had to use the one they provided but now you can use anything you want so you all had to number one you had to somebody had to own that mixer so we had to buy the dmc mixers um and the crossfaders weren't the best and you batter the batter the crap out of those things they didn't last very long um you'd be spraying wd-40 into them and get them to come back and you snap them off and you try and super glue them back on or you take it out and try and put something else. I remember I had a, a Gemini mix. I can't think of the name of it. The one um, Cash Money and Jazzy Jeff had. And I bought that from America. And that thing was just unreal because it was so small. So I had a phonic mixer, which was about, I don't know, two foot long. Um, and then you got this, this amazing um, Gemini mixer, which is about 10 inches wide. And obviously that means you can get closer to the decks, push your decks closer and you can get faster. So you can do your techniques. So technology wise, really wasn't nothing to do with the, 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 the turntable. It was the mixer, the mixer, right. the smaller that mixer you could get, you could push the decks in closer. And then obviously it, it got to a point where we went battle style. So instead of the, 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 the turntable um, horizontal, we spun it vertically. So you'd have more room on the left-hand side then to move and you'd have less chance of knocking the needle off. And now that's translated to even controllers like the Rev 7 by Pioneer. Now they've just released um, the first battle style um, controller with um, jog wheels, with um, moving platters as well in battle style. So any any turntablist, you'll see they'll turn the, um, the deck vertical with the pitch at the top. Instead of on the right-hand side, it's on the top. And that just opens up a lot more doors, gives you a lot more space. So technology was really innovation from the DJ, but the, the mixer had a lot to do with it. It was one called the Mix, mix, mix Stick, um, the Vestax one. And that was about only about four inches wide, five inches wide, super, super long and, and slim. And obviously you could put that in even closer. So yeah, that, that was the only chance you had of changing technology. And that, that's why it leveled the playing field because you couldn't, use anything else when you enter dmc you used the, the mix that they had that year and that was it you couldn't do anything else so everyone was uh, it was all equal how have you embraced technology yourself within the last 10 years um yeah i mean financially it, it all depends on on cash i remember when the first um dvs digital vinyl system stuff started coming out i remember it was, i think it was um 
what was it called? I can't remember what it was called. Now I saw some some guy using it. I was thinking, what the, what is that? But then Serato came out with a with the box. You had the, you had the sort of uh, the audio interface when you plugged it in, and and I saw that and I thought this is amazing because number one, you have to you used to have to carry records everywhere everywhere you go. Yeah. I mean, you know, even though it's I love vinyl, I used to spend like my younger days just hunting that stuff out just turning up you've got a laptop and uh i think a jazzy jeff said he said it changed his way he toured because when he used to tour he used to have to take five cases six cases of records and now he just takes a, a laptop with with twenty thousand songs on it you know it's just easier technology wise i mean like i said i was out of battling before after they before they introduced being able to use technology so it never really influenced me. But now, you know, when I'm DJing now, I use a lot of CDJs now. So, um, and I still apply those, you know, the turntablist principles to using CDJs. But I play a lot more house music now because there's more opportunities for me because um, I don't really keep up with the, the scratching stuff as much as I used to because uh, there's not, not as many avenues to play it and, you know, more specialized guys and the young guys that's their turn now i've done my bit i've put right. my bit my stamp on there but i still love the technology i've just got i've got a four deck pioneer cdj system that's set up now and i'm just learning how to use four decks um working on that and it's it's amazing it's actually a lot harder to, to dj on cdjs because they're not moving platters they're, st- they're static um there's static jog wheels so it's only the digital the section in the middle so when you're doing backspins it's actually quite hard so if you can backspin on cdjs you've got a lot more you're doing all right. When you think about the 80s, when you think about the 90s, what was it that sticks out about those moments that have a lasting value today in terms of what it is you're doing and teaching? I think innovation um, was the main thing because, like I said, we didn't have access to see anybody else. You didn't have YouTube. You could go on and see what the next guy was doing. And I think if we'd had that then, it would, it would have, um, like YouTube is an amazing tool to learn. I use that a lot to learn everything, I, I you know, lots of stuff. But it's a hit or miss because you go on there and you want to be a turntablist or you want to be a DJ and you see someone who's incredible. You, It's very easy to go, I'll never be that good and it puts you off. Whereas back in the day, you didn't know if you were good or bad. So you didn't give up. You just kept going and eventually you'd find out through execution. You know, you turn up to a gig or you turn up to a DMC competition. If you never won it, you know the deal, Yeah. And you know yourself if you put if you're putting the time in. But now on YouTube, for example, I can type in scratch, crab scratch, demo. Like when I was I studied in university painting, even in university in, in 1996-97 to 2000, the internet was only just coming out then. And if I wanted, to, I remember I'd go into the library to learn how to paint an eye or to paint clouds. I had to get a book out. And but that made me focus a lot more. Now now I can just go on there. And I still do painting now and art. And I just go on how to do this, and there's there is literally thousands of of, uh, of tutorials on this. So sometimes I think it it stifles creativity. Whereas back in the day, there because you didn't know what everyone else was doing, you just kept going and, and you innovated because you you didn't know what what everyone else was doing. So that's why I've taken through in all my teaching and everything I've ever done. You know, I always try and think ahead rather than just do what everyone else is doing. I look, I, I learn what they're doing, and then just try something different. But um, yeah i think it, it for me it, it really developed creativity and uh 
no fear of failing. I just used to do something. If it, if it worked, it worked. And I still do that now with, with all the stuff. If I want to try a new venture, I try it. And I don't care about money. It just, it, it made me, it gave me a, a ambition. Yeah. There's a hunger. It feeds you. Yeah. It's, yeah. And it's still there now, you know, to my detriment in some, some things, there's lots of things I could have changed in my life, you know, but at the time I was focused on, you know, selfishly, if not, I was focused on trying to advance myself and, you know, that's the, that's the, that's the thin line you, 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 tr- you tread, I guess. Well, let's talk about you advancing others through what it is you do now. We've been talking about practice a lot throughout this interview. Uh, let's talk about purpose. Take me into your transition from DJ XL to bad meaning good and what leads you to teaching turntablism today? Okay, so I finished battling 1998 was my last battle. Um, I came second. I was battling the Scratch Perverts, uh, Tony Vegas and Prime Cuts and uh, all those guys. We need to talk about that. Let's not just leave that like yeah, that. Well, Let's talk about I was that. in the Enforcers. I was in the Enforcers with Pogo right. and Swift, and we there was like a rivalry there. Um, and it was that was a nice little nice little rivalry. But I come into that later. I mean, I mean, I was on the tail end of. You know, I think like one of my best sets I've ever done was the 1997 UK final. Um, and that was in Sankey Soaps. And DJ Noise, the world champion, was there. He was judging. And he also came on to do a showcase. We all had a battle at the end, like a freestyle battle. And that was like an, an incredible time. Um, and I left the Enforcers not long after that. And then um, I ended the 98. I came second again. And I just thought, oh, that's enough of this. But previously before that, I'd won the... I'd won the Vestax UK final. So the same DJs, the same, but different judges. So, <laughs> you know, that, that's sort of, I, I think I just got a bit disillusioned by doing coming up with the, all these different ideas and stuff. I mean, everyone was coming right. up with ideas, but I always felt that I was quite innovative. And then I always end up, I just didn't quite get there, you know, always the bridesmaid, never the bride, as they say. And then um, I ended the, the Vestax competition, exactly the same. And then I won it straight away. So, that was great for me and that was a really wicked competition um and then i went to japan and, and met cuba and all those guys through that but after nice. 98 I, I ended up going to university um and then i sort of moved away from djing lots just djing in bands I, I moved to london after after university in birmingham or wolverhampton and i was in london for about 18 years but growing i did a lot of art there lots of bands um, D- just DJing, just playing, playing, you know, uh, music. Did a lot of producing. Just made a lot of trip hop, working with people, um, but not really focused. And then I moved, ended up moving to Barcelona from London, then back home. And then my mum recently passed away, and, and I got made redundant. And I just thought doing a job I didn't want to do. You know, even though I, I love DJing, sometimes unless you're really focused, it doesn't pay the bills. So. You know, it turns into this hobby, and then you, you've got this uh, this burning desire to, to do what you're good at, but you can't make money from it as, as you thought you could. So you just sort of have to compromise. And then, like I said, my mum passed, and I'd lost my job, and I just thought, I'm just going to give this a go. So I looked into it and ended up working with a great company, um, Gwent Music. They supply all the musical instruments and tutors for all the schools in Gwent and Torvine, um, Simon Linden, and... Uh, amazing guy really helpful and uh, i sort of freelance with those guys and then i ended up working with the riverfront um sally evans helped me out quite a lot they're doing the scratch club so now i just you know i still dj professionally as well when i can 
but this is these workshops we're growing the workshops because people don't realize you can do gcse djing now in school because it's been classified as a musical instrument amazing um so you i mean if i'd have had that when, when we were in school all we had were the the standard trades which is still amazing to do i wish i'd learned one of them as well but i was obsessed with djing and if i'd have had that in school the chance to do that so i tell the kids they can do that now um, so yeah, I get booked for workshops and I go in, I do a, a, a teach the, the little ones, the primary schools from about six onwards and upwards and some of the high schools. And it's a growing, it's growing at the moment. We're trying to, we're trying to grow it. So the awareness is there. We've got um, guys coming and do um, rapping and we've got the beatbox, beat, uh, the Dean beat, beat technique. I don't know if you've, kn- you've probably, you probably know Dean. Um, and then, um, we work together, we do work workshops. And then lately I've been going to be working with a guy called Tommy Boost, who's an amazing B-boy. Um, and we're going to be nice. doing a, a, a workshop, which I created called Back to the Old School, where we show the inception of hip hop, really, where it started, which is with Cool Herc as a selector rather than a scratch DJ, but using the break, extending the break for the dancers to, to dance to, hence... Um, break boys break girls b-boys so we're going to be doing that teaching them the the basics of break dancing or b-boying and then i go into a, a, a brief demo showing them how to extend a break and looking for the break of a track and why they extended it which was the best part for people to dance to so we've got all these different workshops and we're just trying to grow awareness and get people um bringing it forward because obviously a lot of the younger people now they, they even if they're in a music class they get trained classically as well, but they listen to electronic music. So they, and I think Gwent, Gwent Music specifically um, identified that and I've done something about and getting getting us guys in to try and modernize certain aspects and offer, offer something that people want as well as the classics, you know? Do you still think about scratch patterns the way you used to? Um, not anymore. Um, because I just use, you know, I'm looking to play out a lot more now. I'm a, that's why I said earlier, I, I've swapped over to using a lot more house music. And it's great for me as well, because even when I was younger, I used to have a lot of house music. I worked in a record shop and I used to get tons of, like all the reps used to come and give me anything I wanted out of the record case. So I had a tons of music, a lot of house music, but then obviously I got into more specialized into the hip hop scene. But scratch techniques, I mean, I, I invented the, 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 the twiddle scratch or uh, flashed crab scratch. And there's, you know, there's been debates. So who, who invented that? And like, cause I showed that to, to, um, to, uh, Cuba and shortcut in Japan in the early nineties. And that was a, cause I was trying to learn the flare scratch back home. I ended up developing that. And then they saw, I showed them that and it, it now it's one of the most recognized scratch in the world. What's up? This is DJ Kubert, Invisible Scratch Pickles, and I'm speaking on the Crab Scratch. How I got that idea was from this guy, DJ XL. I saw him um, tapping the, the fader, and uh, I guess we call that a twiddle scratch, or he might have named it the twiddle scratch. And then I was like trying it and trying it. I was like, wow, it's really difficult to do. So I was like, what if I just rub my fingers across the fader instead of tapping it? So I rubbed all my four fingers, um, besides my thumb, of course. Uh, I used my thumb as a spring. And I rubbed my four fingers across the fader and I came up with the, the crepe scratch. We call it a crepe scratch because there was a, uh, we went to a Lebanon and we were like, we want to order a crepe. And then the lady was like, oh, you want a crepe? 
And so we were laughing, me and Mixmaster Mike, and we named it the Hype Scratch. And of course, we we did that on the um, Turntable Mechanics Workshop, and you can see it's all spelled like Hype. And then nobody could pronounce it, so it became the Crab Scratch. It was great because there's the idols who I looked upon as like masters, and they they looking at me, this this little Welsh dude who came up with like a which which, which really sort of changed the way a lot of people scratched. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't I don't really get into the whole who invented it sort of thing because I I know what I did developing it, you know, forward, you know, using hamster style and the other way. And there's there's always people saying who invented it, so I don't get caught up in that. I mean, I'm just happy to be part of in in the whole thing that is turntablism. I invented a, something that changed a lot of um, the way the scratching happened and. I respect like Hubert and, and Shortcut, like who I was with, with over there, and DJ Ratmatic and um, Melody and all these guys from the Beat Junkies. It was just amazing to be with those guys, and they were just, you know, they, they were supreme talents. So, you know, sometimes you think, oh, you know, who invented this? It's all rubbish anyway, because you know, I, I I ripped off loads of people's stuff, and they've ripped other people rip each other off all the time. So. I, People try and sort of goad you into saying you did this and you did that. I know in my head what, what we did and that's all that matters. And I, I just loved meeting those guys because I had pictures of them on my wall. And, you know, I remember meeting them. They were them heroes. And, yeah, well, they still are. I mean, like, like Hubert, you know, there's so many amazing scratches now, but that guy has just got something different. You know, he's just an amazing, uh, he's an amazing talent. All those guys are from the Scratch Pickles and, uh, and, um, the executioners with uh you know the rock radio sadly passed away hi there i'm Cutmaster swift and i am the former 1989 dmc world champion um i'm a member of the enforcers crew dj pogo dj billy business Mad Cut and also of and DJ XL and the additions of Mad Cut and DJ XL literally came on our radar because we acknowledge XL within the championships when we had obviously stopped competing in the competition. So I was hosting the DMC events and judging them as well. And yes, a very excited XL with innovative ideas grabbed our attention and. You know, when DJs talk, there's always similarities we feel comfortable in talking about and influences and what our goals are and our, and and, and, and um, basically just reminiscing over certain things. And Excel's struck that bone with us, you know, and that's why we we um, pretty much initiated him into the crew um, and. Um, I don't think he ever really competed with us, but he did, you know, a lot of the time associate with DJ Pogo. Yeah, he was a very, he's a very innovative person. A lot of people may not know he's the reason why there's a crab scratch because he created something called the twiddle scratch. And he thought that's how they were doing the flare scratch because the flare is a cousin of the transformer, which requires you moving the fader very rapidly chop the sound up into very fine parts so excel because flaring had the speed but more of a smoothness 
compared to transforming because transforming is very choppy because you're chopping on off on off off if that makes sense off on off sorry that's the word correct saying i'm sitting but transform um the flares are on off on so it's the opposite of that so the faders mainly always open and he worked out by using his individual fingers he could get that rapid speed and he showed it to cuba and mix master mike and they went oh okay that's not what we're doing but that's very interesting and then cuba thought okay instead of using three fingers which is the thumb and your middle finger and your pointer he thought why not use all four fingers bouncing off the thumb and it was in lebanon i believe he said they called it the hab scratch because they were eating hubs crepes but they pronounce it as hub and yeah he called it the, someone said oh i like you know you're doing that crab scratch and um that's how that came about but there's a little bit of a dispute about who is the actual creator of it because dj disc who was also from san francisco and a very reputable dj um who's the pioneer of the orbit scratch or the orbit flare um says he lays claims to he helped invent, innovate the, the crab scratch so you know these things happen all the time in the art form you know um it's it's a it's a very respected technique it's adopted worldwide everybody uses it so um credit to all you know but it's very important that people do know that it initially came from DJ XL because he's the one that inspired that idea practice why well, I've gone off topic a bit but practice wise I don't really practice I just use the basics because you know you can be as amazing as, as you want at scratching but if you, you're playing a party you can't really just stand there and scratch and that's why I've sort of tried to move into partying as I'm getting older number one I'm not as flexible as, <laughs> as I was and I've got you know quite extensive uh, arthritis in my right hand of all things now all the cartilage is gone and uh I know what all the all the innuendos are going to come out now. You know what you've been doing with your right hand, but um, partially, I'm I'm saying it's through scratching, just just letting you put it out there. But so I don't really practice the techniques. I, I I still keep up with it for the kids, and like if I'm teaching the crab scratch or the flare scratch, I'll teach them that. You know, I practice it, but I don't really actively do a lot of um, sort of battle practice because. I've done my time, you know. I, I I enjoyed it while it was there, but now I found house music now, uh, and for me that's great because it's, you know, at one point I know it sounds bad, but I got a bit bored of playing the same hip hop tunes all the time, you know. You know how many times can I keep playing Peter Piper, or, you know, Randy MC, even though it's a killer track. So after a while I got a bit bored of it, and then I had a, a bit of a break, and then it's a sort of. Um, now I'm getting more into the house music. I've got hundreds of thousands of house tracks I can discover, which I've never heard before. And, and I apply my turntablist sort of mentality to that and try and do a few things that which are outside the box. Like I said, I'm just starting to use four CDJs and trying to apply that and um, like doing jazz sets using, you know, nice. I make some stems and trying to, as if I'm playing the drums, but on CDJs or playing, playing bass or playing the harmonica and stuff. So yeah, it's just moved on a bit. Um, 
and it's still creative with it but it's You've got to play it to the audience because they don't understand most audience members. You've got to think if you go to a club, most of them are going to be off it. And I just use it as an attention grabber, you know, to get people's attention. And then you give them what you what they want. And then every now and again, just rip it up to make yourself stand out. What's next for you? What's next for Bad Meaning Good? Um, so I want to, obviously, I'm, I'm trying to grow my business, stay in business as well, because, you know, you know what's happening with the everything's got 25 pence added to it you know you get you get a bit of pasta it's one pound 25 now instead of one pound one quid you go in poundland and everything's 125 or 150 <laughs> it's supposed to be poundland <laughs> what's happening poundland sort it out um but i'm just trying to like i said i'm 51 now 52 in january and i really just want to meet what I miss about DJing, because at the moment I, I, I'm not doing a lot of gigs and I'm in Newport, and there's not a lot going on, you know, as in music-wise, for me anyway, what I can get into. So I'm just trying to keep my business going by doing the workshops and advancing, doing doing stuff like that, and also trying to grow sets, you know, my DJ sets to try and get more gigs myself. Um, and I just want to... What I missed about the DMCs is the access to talented people, how much you... How many people you meet, you know, really good people who are super talented, and it just it just takes you around. So I'd be happy just to make, you know, everyone wants to make a good living, but I'm I'm more now in this age. I just want to play music, meet lots of really you know great people, just create, uh, get more friends, you know, just link up with a lot more people, travel around a little bit more. Um, and like I said, that the money isn't the primary drive. It's just being able to do this rather than having to do something I don't want to do, you know? Uh, meaning good. Thanks so much for taking the time out to do this, man. It's been an absolute joy talking about this history. Oh, man, I really enjoy it. Thanks, Luke. We've been talking about his importance throughout this series so far. Founder of Street Sounds, Morgan Khan is with us to talk about the impact of his Street Sounds compilations in Wales and across the UK. Hi, my name is Morgan Khan. I'm founder and CEO of Street Sounds. Street Sounds was actually launched, conceived back in 1982. I thought of the concept of Street Sounds as a way of the average person, including myself, by the way, because I've always seen myself as a punter, a fan, as well as being so to speak, in the industry, I wanted to find a way because I was spending a lot of money buying import records from the States. I used to go each week to um, different outlets in London, different distributors, Bluebird, Groove Records, City Sounds, and <clears throat> excuse me, wait for the import vans to arrive on a Friday and um, we would get the latest imports from the States. At that particular time, late 70s, early 80s, the music that was definitely the most prolific in terms of what I was into and the sound was all coming from, from the US. We still hadn't developed or established our own hip hop or alternative street scenes in the UK or Europe. So I just pick up these import records and they used to cost me a lot of money, um, a great deal of money imports cost in those days. And I, I had previously to this started my music career. Um, this was 1982 
five years, four and a half, five years earlier, when I was working on pirate radio, Radio Jackie as a DJ, and then starting off as postboy. What a great, what a great um, uh, achievement for someone who's supposed to be a doctor as postboy at Pi Records. This was in 1978. I was fortunate enough, and I'm skipping back because it'll make sense when I go forward again. I was fortunate enough to have superb mentors around me, the very best of um, A&R, marketing, Dave McLean, contracts, financial, Madeline Hawkyard. I'm too many people to actually name, but they were phenomenally brilliant people. And I say the best at what they do. And I quickly from Postboy went to Disco Promotions Manager, Label Manager, <clears throat> Within street within a uh, Pi Records and Pi Records at that time were a major distributor. They had labels like Casablanca with a uh, Donna Summer, Parliament. They had Buddha, Gladys Knight, High Cream, Al Green, and Peebles. Twentieth uh, Century Barry White, Gene Chandler. The list goes on. That was an important day, important time for me, because in late '79. I was asked by the then managing director of uh, Pi Records to evaluate a new label that they were considering. And as I was in charge of the disco promotion side, the black music side of Pi, and having tremendous success already um, at, at, at young and tender age, so to speak, they asked me to fly to the States. Unbeknown to me at that stage, the label would become synonymous with hip hop, with Sugar Hill Records. And I um, <clears throat> and I um, got on a plane, flew to the States, and uh, I won't go through the intricacies, the details, but I met with Joe Robinson, Sylvia Robinson, and was in the studio in Inglewood where their studios were. And that was the first time I heard in a studio environment as opposed to driving to Inglewood and on the street, seeing these kids on the street toasting to hot, these hot um, 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 kerosene. Try and imagine a rocky scene and they're standing by these huge ga gasoline drums keeping warm. And they're kind of, we know it now as rapping, but toasting, um, singing over beats. When I got in the shoot of you know, Sugar Hill Records, that was the first time, as I said, I heard rap and it was sugar hill gang rap with delight so i was there i also heard other products that are in the can projects projects that are in the can um positive force we got the funk i was listening to other artists that were on the sugar hill label um grandmaster flash melly mel so many things in the can that was still in production mode and i can be honest to you i had never in my life in the industry, been more exciting, excited hearing this genre of music. Cutting a long story short, brought back hip hop, we signed Sugar Hill. Sugar Hill Gang had the first commercial rap record. I had great success with Pi. I decided to leave. Um, it's a long story, it's not connected with street sounds or hip hop. I decided to leave, created my first record label, R&B Records. And my first signing was Imagination, my first group. Again, tremendous chart and sales success with that. And I still continued my American side. So I still had a, my American label, um, which I used to develop um, um, uh, American 
and promote and release American artists. So R&B was my UK label. My American label was Excalibur. Why Excalibur Records? Because at Pi, I had a label called Caliber. And I just wanted to uh, fuck them off and decided to create a, a, a label with a, a play of words. Uh, again, great success. But my partners and I fell out there. But I was headhunted then at that stage. We're talking about 81, 82 by CBS, now Sony. And they got me a, a label deal. And the label deal, I created Street Wave Records, which became the sister company for Street Sounds. Street Wave was to develop artists um, and bring them through the whole A&R mill. And again, great success. My first release was Alton Edwards' uh, track, What I Want to Spend Some Time With You, went top 10, phenomenally successful around the world. But there was still always in my heart this American side in terms of it was still cutting edge even with my product in the uk it was almost a to be honest if i can be as candid as transparent as possible it was almost an emulation a, 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 a facsimile of um what was coming out of the states it, it had of course its own signature and the group and the artists had their own style but it was always not copying is the wrong word it was it was just trying to reproduce an american sound and then um, let's fast forward a little bit, getting to 82, and I used to buy these import records. I started hearing music that came in, and I wanted to be able to have that and buy those 12 inches, but a lot of people couldn't afford to do it. So I came up with the concept of creating an album series. And the, the actual first name, first incarnation, which only lasted a few months, was Street Wise. And that Street Noise, sorry, there's a Street Noise album, which you can still find on Discogs on. I think it still goes for some ridiculous amount. And that was released with my distributor, my label, who had Street Wave called CBS, which I mentioned. Um, it was an underground success, but that inspired me to put out more albums, more releases, and I changed the name from Street Noise and to Street Sounds. And that was going to be a compilation, quote unquote, the catchphrase at, at the time, the latest, greatest dance tracks. And that's what I wanted it to be. Import records, uh, eight or 10 on each album. Instead of the price of an extortionate 12-inch single from America, it will be a UK domestic album price. The rest, so to speak, is history became a, a slow burn, I must admit, because I didn't get the support of the UK labels. That's an important point to mention. As usual, something new, something entrepreneurial, they didn't see or understand it. Remember at this stage, the majors did not understand, appreciate, or acknowledge Black music could sell. They did not see it. Their, their rosters, their, their, their A&R departments were pop rock geared. They didn't have any black music departments. Closest they got was disco departments or disco managers. They went to wear that. What was happening in the streets, in the in the streets of New York, and two beat happening in the streets of the UK and Europe was there was a street scene developing, and that street scene initially was electro. That brought brings us to the birth of the Electro Street Sound album. So the first albums on Street Sounds were Dance, Soul. This is the beginning of 82. I started flying to the States. And when I started flying to the States, I started realizing and seeing, because I was in touch with a lot of the studios. 
And people saw what I was doing with street sounds. And they knew my history, of course, during my Pi days and my CBS days. And I started receiving demos on cassettes. And of course, every year I used to go to the New Music Seminar, which was a, a, an event that was created by Tom Silverman of Tommy Boy Records. It was a great, great um, uh, conference. Everyone would go down there, many independent labels, and you you'd meet the married in New York. Um, a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people used it to get drunk. A lot of drugs, girls, typical absolute rock and roll. Um, but it was a forum. It was a, it was a conduit of artists, producers, uh, and independent, uh, independent labels. This is where I met Corey Robbins' profile, Tom Silverman, Tommy Boy, um, Bobby Robinson, uh, um, um, B Boy Records. So you know we're talking about the 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 um, nucleus of what was about to happen on the street scene. I met them all, and they were releasing these twelve-inch singles. Selling in the tri-state area of America, that's New York, New Jersey, New York, New Jersey, what's the third one? It'll come to me, the tri-state of New York, um, um, but not selling anywhere else. And I told them, let me license this repertoire for Europe. Let me take it on board. I think it's amazing. It's fresh. It's different. It's energetic. It has power. It's 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 new. It's, it's fresh. Um, and I started licensing repertoire. And I realized from releasing the repertoire that there was a new style hitting. There's a new music that was coming out, both from the East and West Coast of America. And this music was raw. It was primal. It was so exciting for me. It was hit. It was electro, which, of course, evolved, uh, morphed and became hip hop. So these were the beginning and these was the reason and the, I think the foundation, not I think, were the foundations of where kind of street electro hip hop began. So that's a little taster of where and what Street Sounds was about. Street Sounds went on to release 23, I think, electro albums, numerous other um, genre compilations within the Street Sounds umbrella. We were without question, which I'm so glad has been acknowledged numerous times. We brought street culture, street music to Europe. Because when I say street culture, it was a style of music that had a culture around it. The elements of hip hop we now know. It had the music, the beats. It had the graffiti. It had the break dancing. It had all those different elements that were culturally and are culturally significant to hip hop. And without the street sound compilations as an access point for a whole generation of, of kids to listen to, I'm sure it would happen. I'm sure I'm not, I'm not uh, uh, naive or egotistic enough to think it wouldn't have happened with uh, someone else down the line. But because we were this conduit, we weren't diluting what we were doing. We were pure to the music, to the core, to the scene. It created and developed the scene, which of course Street Sounds led and we very much put our, our energies and efforts towards which culminated in terms of the, the, the first huge event, which was uh, any any event in Europe, which was the UK Fresh 1986 event. That's another conversation. So that's a little bit about the history of the birth of Street Sounds.